The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Geeks and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. And this is mini-episode 31.5, or Kinetti's Revenge point five. Sure. I want to preface this by saying we didn't really know what we were going to be doing for this whole Kinetti's Revenge themed episode because I didn't know what it meant. Steven didn't know what it meant. We just kind of went with it. Take a listen. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do for this uh, Kennedy's Revenge. If I just come out like, just come out swinging, well, I don't know. The thing is, Michael, you don't have to do anything because what that that's the point. It's just like, I prepare nothing. I just talk about whatever I want to talk about. But I prepare Maybe nothing I'll all the time. <laughs> I always prepare nothing. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Listen, we're, we're not even going to make you read. You don't have to read anything. You're just like, whatever. <laughs> well, I was I was telling him before you came on that we have to talk about ElfQuest. So I was just like, you can just say, I don't want to talk about ElfQuest anymore. And that could be the whole shtick. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Nobody yeah. wants to hear me read. Period. <laughs> Nobody- <laughs> okay. By the way, if you guys want it to be a drunk show, you could do that too. We'll be able to... We'll be able to release like 15 minutes of it on the main total episode length, eight (laughs) minutes long. (laughs) Just be. So I kind of leaned into being sort of the heel, if you would, you know, for like wrestling terms or some sort of like crazy character that I kind of portrayed. If you enjoyed the episode, we just had a lot of fun just kind of goofing around, having a great time. But if you didn't, I apologize. We just tried something a little bit silly and goofy to see what would happen. All right, guys, so here is what's going on. As you are are well aware, in episode 31, I was not around to kind of keep tabs on Michael and Steven. In fact, I decided, you know, to let Michael have his own rumspringer and just let it all go, experience the podcast as he saw fit. And uh, during this process, he managed to make uh, some somewhat inflammatory remarks about the long-running comic book series revered and well-loved elf quest by wendy and richard peeney in fact uh, simultaneously with that recording there was some activity on our social media where the official elf quest uh, account found a post that we made right uh, uh, referred to them as obscure they said that they had some different words in mind you know but uh, that's fine elf quest is not our number one book uh, over here on wizards however for somebody else it is of great interest and so for a rebuttal to michael's comments we bring chris bailey aka charlton hero who uh, has a, a thing or two to say Oh my God, Adam! I, I could not wait to get on here for the the absolute sacrilege that was uh, Michael and Stevens' comments, the derogatory, derogatory nature of their Elf Quest comments. <laughs> oh boy, myself and Christian, I mean, we were just rubbing our hands, waiting to get our dirty mitts on these two fools for trashing the artwork of one Wendy Peeney. Oh my God! Listen, Elf Quest is a labor of love. And I mean, you know what? That was a book back in the late 70s. I mean, this thing was in an era where you couldn't just get on a digital tablet and, you know, do some uh, do some photo referenced 
uh, painting art and sell it, you know, in a comic book store five minutes later. You actually had to have a talent. You actually had to know how to draw Adam. And I don't think these two fools knew exactly what they're talking about. So while they're enjoying their, their pogs and while they're enjoying their video games, they should pick up a copy of ElfQuest and actually read it because I guarantee you, Adam, it would change their mind. Now, if they're not a wolf rider by the time they're finished the, the entire first quest, which is a tome, a Bible unto itself, I can't help them. Oh, my God. I, I, I couldn't believe it. This is 2021, and I'm offended, damn it. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. I think I, we needed to get that word from an expert. And obviously, we heard from so many more of you who have been reading ElfQuest for the better part of 20 years. If you weren't there at the beginning, you know, you definitely caught on. And uh, yeah, they definitely have a legacy that endures, and they, you cannot fault them their art style is very distinct, and you know an ElfQuest book when you see it. So I, I think a ElfQuest book would like would look quite good in amongst their chromium covered uh, Venom comics that they have that fills up their collections. That's all I'll tell you, Adam. Thank you, Chris. And uh, where can people find you talking more about ElfQuest? You can find me over on the Twitter at Charlton underscore Hero. I'm always chatting sometimes about ElfQuest, but. If you're super interested in ElfQuest, myself and Mr. Chris Sheehan will be doing Quester Days, which one episode already exists. And as soon as he's through his current uh, X-Men duration that he's doing right now over on X-Lapsed, which, by the way, check it out if you're an X-Men fan trying to get current, uh, we are going to be breaking down ElfQuest, the original Quest, the epic comic from Marvel Comics. So Quester Days will be coming your way very soon, Adam. Thank you. We got a handful of things to cover in this mini episode. I won't waste too much of your time. We'll just dive right into it with the top 10 comics of the month. Top 10 of February 1994. So number one is Ninjak number one. This has been on the list a few times already, right? Yeah, it says, hey, Valiant's back at the top slot. Hudson's Wizard number 24. That was July, boys and girls. Has the Big V been number one? And that was with Bloodshot number six, the first appearance of Ninjak. See how this <laughs> all ties together? We're professionals. Uh, yeah, so Ninjak number one, artist Joe Casada. Yep. Okay. Number two is Moon Knight 55. Up two spots from last month. Oh, great. It moved up. Now <laughs> it's in its fourth straight month in the top 10 or the terrific 10. This baby shows no sign of slowing down. Mr. Platt's artwork is garnered a huge fan following. Moon Knight is history in issue 60, but this particular issue is holding strong. Platt originally was slated to Pencil Cable. Have you read that book lately? It's getting pretty cool, story-wise, immediately following his Moon Knight tenure, but has decided instead to take on Extreme Studios' profit, which probably was a bad career move for him. Mm -hmm. And that's number two, Moon Knight number 55, which we've talked about 400 times already. Yes. Number three is Daredevil number 319. Uh, it says, you know, as a little human interest story here, it's fun working at Wizard and all. I meet lots of great people and I work in the industry I grew up loving. But there's one little drawback. And here it comes all caps. 
writing about the same books every month. There's nothing left to say about this book that hasn't been said in the past four months. It's the beginning <laughs> of a storyline in which DD gets a new costume and Electra comes back to life. It was underordered. It's drawn by a guy who, who draws sort of like Frank Miller and it's gritty. Ta-da. Next. Thank God. So he feels Thank- as we feel. Thank God they come out and say that, right? Oh man, that made me feel a lot better about this. So segment. good, wizard. Yeah. Number four, Wolverine seventy-five. This book continues to disappear from shelves everywhere. Many stores are sold out. Everyone wanted to know what happened to Wolvie at the hands of the dastardly master of magnetism, Magneto, and consequently, this book was heck is a scorcher. If you check out the top one hundred comics this month you'll see that all the X titles are doing quite well. We imagine having a Saturday morning cartoon that acts as a half-hour commercial for both the comic and the toy lines helps. We'd just like to remind you, Adam Kubert is doing some of the best and most underrated art in the business on this title. So check it out. Cool. Number five is Marvel's number one. It says... Which we've talked about youtube series because you showed the cover to this one i did yeah i bought these when they came out it says remember when watchmen and dark knight came out and you knew that next month another chapter of these awesome series would hit the shelves it's been a pretty rough dry spell lately as far as grade a comics go but marvel has landed on the comic scene like a like a hell like a great like a great comic book those still stand out you know this book with outstanding artwork by alex ross and riveting storytelling by Kurt Busiek has earned a place among the ranks of the elites. Throw in a somewhat limited print run, a five ninety five cover price will do that, and you have a cooking book. And nowadays, five ninety five is not all that uncommon for for a for a book. No, no, goodness. So me. number six is prime number two. I'm not even going to bother reading it because <sighs> no one cares. Thunder Punch E-Man. Number seven is Moon Knight 56. So he basically says, I'd like to throw another tantrum here, like I did on a Daredevil 319, but I'm only allowed one of those every six months. So what do I say about Moon Knight 56 that hasn't been said before? Not much. Stephen Platt did the art for it. That's why it's hot. Blah, blah, blah. Wait, there's one thing that says here is, but before he became the hottest thing, Mr. McFar or Mr. Platt worked on the it should have been canceled both times moon night <laughs> i find that kind of funny that he says that it's pretty good that's pretty good does that count towards adams mcfarland count because he didn't technically say mcfarland he stopped i, I didn't count I it i'll give him like a mm, half vote no no i'm not i'm not going back that's not okay, fully good. mcfarland number eight i think is a new book on this list is gambit number one there you go okay finally look at that a new and frankly Surprising entry to the top 10. Surprising only because it's so long after its initial release. The book itself is rather excellent. Gambit is obviously another beneficiary of the weekly Saturday morning half-hour animated series. Gambit has been immensely popular since his introduction due to his suave way with the ladies as well as all the mystery that surrounds his past just what lies ahead for this raging cajun it appears that a relationship of sorts with rogue is in the cards get it hmm. among other revelations of a relative sort 
think about it. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, that yeah, mean? I guess you'll have to pick up, pick up the book there. Number nine is Daredevil Man Without Fear, number one, which we've covered here before. In a perfect world, Frank Miller would write Daredevil on a monthly basis. Watchmen would be an ongoing series. And comic books would proudly read Still Only 35 Cents. Alas, many fans today have never heard of Watchmen. It's tough to find a comic book under a buck and a quarter. And the Daredevil, the Man Without Fear five-issue miniseries may be Miller's last work on Old Hornhead. So there you go. We've covered it before. I, I think that if Watchmen was an ongoing series, it would have not held up like as significant as it was with just being the 12-issue run that it was. Oh, totally, yeah. It's. I mean, it's it's perfect for what it is. So number 10. X-Men Unlimited number three. Usually you think Marvel is publishing a new X title and it costs $3.95. It's probably the same crappy filler stuff, so I'll skip it. And in the case of X-Men Unlimited, it couldn't be further from the truth. Finally, a book with a gaudy cover price that's worth every penny and then some. Starting with the awesome Bill, S- whatever that guy's name. I, I couldn't say before. I couldn't say his name Sin- before. Sinkevich. Sinkevich. Okay. Starting with the awesome Bill Sinkevich. Has this guy been sorely missed or what? Cover. Followed by the super clean art style of Mike McCone. We know he makes Sabretooth look like a monkey, but we think it adds to his mutantness and ending with a great fabian story that fits neatly into x continuity this is as far from filler as you can get and that is the top 10 for february of 94 oh yeah so we had a couple of new titles maybe three new titles on this list hopefully by next month we'll get some of these other titles off the list and get some more new titles on there. I haven't looked yet, but I guarantee you Prime number two is on there. I'm sure it is. And probably one of the Moon Knights will still be on there and probably a Daredevil. Yep. We're screwed. Yeah, big time. <laughs> so anyway, back to uh, me for whatever's up next. <laughs> <laughs> next, we're going to go to Steven. And now it's time for Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Hey guys, it's Steven looking at toys again. Uh, So this month we have four third prize winners. First up, there's a beast figure. The caption says, Ag, I've got fleas in my pits. So his arms are up, which makes sense. Uh, It says Marshall Brooks Jr. of Redford, Michigan sends us a piecemeal beast made from a Hasbro World Wrestling Federation Sid Justice body. I had that toy. It was really cool. Toy Biz Wolverine 3 head and Playmates Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Splinter hands and feet brain supplied by Abby Normal. Obviously that's a young Frankenstein joke. Cool looking beast figure. Very cool. Next up is the other third prize winner. Cool costume lame character it says and that lame character according to them is Booster Gold who I love. I love Booster Gold. Booster Gold Blue Beetle. Come on. Never got better than that. Uh, It says Eric Gonzalez of Odessa, Florida sends in the pre-armor booster gold made from the remains of a superpowers Green Lantern. I think this figure looks awesome. This might have been my first choice. If I were the Homemade Heroes editor over at Wizard, I was not. I was a nerd in middle school. 
reading wizard. But anyway, I digress. Uh, another third prize winner is a Madman figure. Uh, it says the official Madman action figure with special must-up hair action features. Yeah, that makes sense. From Nelson Gonzalez, uh, not related to Eddie Gonzalez, uh, according to the spelling here. So it's from Nelson Gonzalez of Hialeah, Florida. What? I just butchered that. Anyway, who cares? And he sends us something that was probably on Mike Allred's Christmas list, a Madman action figure courtesy of a Batman the Animated Series Robin. I can tell right away that's the Batman the Animated Series Robin. I had that toy. I love that toy. I'm going to go on eBay and look for that toy right now. And let's see how much I can get it for. Uh, next up, the final third prize winner. It says, Shish Kebab, anyone? And, it, and the caption reads, by the way, I do not recognize this character. So let's see. This is going to be a surprise for everybody involved in this recording, which is just me. Uh, Zach Hall of Arlington, Texas, provides us with America's leading proctologist and sink snaker, Warblade, made from a toy biz Gideon action figure. You see, it says he's a proctologist because he's holding a long sword. So it's a proctologist joke. One digression, I was once playing bar trivia in Montana, and there was a team called the proctologists. And I, being naive, thought they were all really proctologists. And I was like, how many proctologists does this small town in Montana need? Turns out they were just making a joke about proctologists. Maybe it was wizard writers. I don't know. And I'll never know. Okay, so on to the second prize winners. Uh, there's two of them. First up, it's a Violator action figure. And the caption reads, Valentine's Day in Clive Barker land. You see, because the Violator is holding a heart and he looks like a monster. So a Clive Barker joke. There you go. Stephen Rydgren of Kent, Washington sends us the dentist's nightmare, or is that nightmare dentist, known as the Violator, who was made from dismembered G.I. Joe parts. What the hell G.I. Joe looks like this? I don't, I never liked G.I. Joe, but I don't, whatever. This does not look like a G.I. Joe to me. Uh, and it says he's kind of cute when he's only six inches tall, eh? All right. The other second prize winner is Michael's favorite, Magnus. Uh, and the caption reads, impressive, but can he twirl it on his head? Because he looks like he's holding like an IG-88 figure from Star Wars. So it says, Joseph Birchfield of Valrico, Florida, created the skirt-wearing Magnus IG-88 fighter. Oh, I was right. Out of a superpower Superman. You can tell that right away. I love the Superman superpowers. Got that one on my shelf. It's beautiful. And then it says, neat belt buckle, because the belt buckle has an M on it for Magnus, in case he forgets what his name is. He looks down at the initial. He knows. So yes, these are the figures. I just want to note that a lot of people from Florida are sending in toys. I, get there's, I guess there's not much going on in Florida. But the grand prize winner is not from Florida. It's from Tempe, Arizona. It's an Azrael action figure. And the caption reads, Hey, Azrael, how many cookies do you want? Because it looks like Azrael's holding up three fingers. So he wants three cookies. The uh, description says, Chris Spassif of Tempe, Arizona created Azrael out of an air attack Batman and a lot of hard work. It shows. Great job, Chris. It's a really cool toy. I'll give it up for this Azrael. But for me, that Booster Gold is very hard to beat. I mean, that star looks so neat on his chest. How do you do that? How do you just do that freehand, paint a star like that? Uh, and the Madman figure is really cool as well. Uh, and if I can pre-order a Magnus, uh, you know, robot fighter toy for Michael, I will. Preferably a hot toy. I'm spending a lot of money on this for Michael because I know how much he loves Magnus. And that was Homemade Heroes. Uh, thank you for listening. And now to you, Adam. Uh-oh, it's time for Hunk and Babe of the Month. I'm too sexy for my shirt. 
This month's babe, oh my, it's Lady Death. Check out those tan lines, hubba hubba. Okay, how do you raise your hand in school? Huh? Jeez, this soulless embodiment of death is much hotter than DC's. Wow, it might even be worth it to aggravate a postal worker so I could check out Lady Death here a little closer up. So what are the odds that if you do kick the bucket, you meet up with Anna Nicole Death here, and not some crusty old fart with a weed whacker? Maybe I'll just stick to admiring her from afar, but... Ah... To dream. Hey, that makes two Vertigo references so far in this issue of Wizard. In Hunkin' Babe, no less. Who would have believed it? Oh, wow. So, yes, Lady Death, in all her topless glory here, only being covered up by crossed arms. But, man, did we get some serious 90s references here. Aggravating a postal worker, going postal. It was all in the news at this time. Anna Nicole Smith references. But either way, I think this is pretty interesting because, yeah, Lady Death wasn't a prominent figure yet. You know, she had appeared in Evil Ernie comics, and then now, she's just starting to gain popularity this was probably a lot of people's first exposure to her in wizard and wow we know where that goes from 94 to 96 97 yeah the years of lady death are strong but uh speaking of strong what do we have for the hunk of the month annie flowers and now time for a hunk of the month this month we have hellstorm hey where's that pentagram pointing Though you really couldn't tell by his ready-for-the-beach bikini briefs, old Damon here is the son of Satan. Yeah, you heard me right. The son of he who punches kittens and enjoys it. The lord of the flies and lies. Satan. Who, by the way, sounds a lot like James Earl Jones. Anyway, Hellstorm may have a buff bod, a mysterious look about him, and the neatest salad fork this side of the infernal nether realms, but there are some serious drawbacks to dating this guy. Him puking up pea soup every few minutes is just the tip of the iceberg. Handsome? Yes. Family man? Well, I gotta say, I'm not sure about this guy. Even though he's ripped beyond belief, he actually has these pointy little ears that are a little strange, and, um, not sure about his daddy issues. But I bet he knows some cool tricks with that pitchfork. Thanks, Annie. And hey, back to you, Michael. Here we are talking about the top 10 heroes and villains of March 1994. This list doesn't track the number of copies which a specific character sells each month. It doesn't pay any attention to any kind of sales meter. This list is a roster of the top 10 comic book characters with the strongest fan following. Nothing more, nothing less. So, okay. Number one, if we're going to do it as, you know, one to ten, I guess, sure, mm-hmm. is simply Spawn. He's the it guy of the time right now. He is he is it. So number two is Aunt May's favorite nephew, Spider-Man. Hope they got a lot of wheat cakes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who you should follow on Instagram is Frank Cho, who is a comic book artist. I do and, follow and him. So he does a lot of like of his own co- like 
covers that people have him do. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of Spider-Man jokes on all of his covers, which are fantastic. That's awesome. So, pretty good. So number three is Batman. Need I say more? No, not really. Number four is Marvel's King of the Limited series, Venom. But what's weird about this picture is the show, the image they're showcasing is like Eddie Brock becoming Venom. And it's like half Eddie Brock and half Venom, but not actually full Venom, which is weird. It looks like Goofy dipped his face in tar. Yeah, it kind of does look like that. It's a very good analogy. Thank you. Number five is Superman. And yet the picture they're showing is of mulleted Clark Kent. (laughs) All right. Number six is Sabretooth. Okay. Okay. I guess they had to throw in a villain somewhere. So number seven is Daredevil. Okay, cool. I'm glad he's on the list. I, I approve. Number eight is Gambit. Fitting because I am Gambit on the wizard logo. That is kind of fitting. Well, wow. okay. So there you go. Uh, number nine is everyone's favorite He-Man variant Prime. <laughs> okay. Number 10 is Death from the Sandman comics. That's kind of interesting. That's a very interesting pull. Now, is she a villain or a hero? I thought she was a hero. I thought she was, too. In the, so, in the handful of Sandman comics I've read. So literally, this list has one actual villain on it. Well, Venom? Venom? Like, is Venom a villain at this point, or is he more of like an anti-hero? Mm, I think he's still a villain. All right. Batman. Rich guy that beats up poor people. <laughs> oh, poor Batman. <laughs> poor Batman. <laughs> Him and Punisher are gonna have to really get rebranded nowadays. <laughs> so, and and that is the top ten heroes and villains for March of '94. Okay, all right. Great. And now Adam is gonna take us on another exciting Gen 13 history lesson. Take it away, Adam. Hey guys, Adam here calling in on the Gen 13 line to fill you in on the haps with those super-powered kids over at Image Comics. This time around, I hope you went to the bathroom before you started listening because it's time for a road trip as we discuss Gen 13 half and issue number zero. As you'll recall, Gen 13 half was exclusively available through a Wizard Magazine mail-away offer and contained both an interview with creator Jim Lee and artist J. Scott Campbell about the creation of the team, which we've already covered in a previous installment. Though, when confronted about the resemblance of Campbell's work to Jim Lee, he did elaborate. So, Wizard asked, J. Scott, how many of the artists that work at Homage have that Jim Lee look to their work? Will you be deviating from that style, giving Gen 13 a more distinctive look? J. Scott Campbell says, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a major goal of Alex and myself. Jim Lee is definitely my most major, major influence. I've been a really big fan of his since the first days of his career. Out of respect for his style, I don't want to copy it to the degree that other artists out there have. I'm trying as hard as I can to have my own distinct style. It's going to take some time to pull away from that house style 
that Homage Studios is getting a reputation for. At the same time, I'd like to think that my stuff is different enough to be judged on its own merits in terms of style and looks. Also, I think Alex's inks on me are a little different than, say, Scott Williams. So I'd say, yeah, it's definitely a goal of ours to make the book have a distinctive style and look, not only in artwork, but in terms of storyline and characterization. We'd like to have it different and unique from the rest of the Homage Studio books. So, yes, he was very aware that people thought he was a Ghibli clone, and he certainly did not disappoint when he finally got to come into his own. Now, also in the back of the half issue were sketches of the group showing the evolution of their character designs and unused cover layouts when they were still Gen X. And speaking of unused covers, Wizard eventually revealed the original cover for Gen 13 half, which was just a close-up of a very dark helmeted figure against a red background. But since that character didn't actually appear in the story, Jim Lee asked them to change it. So Wizard used the promotional ad art drawn by Jim Lee instead. Wise choice, Jim. So, speaking of artists, it's bizarre that this Gen 13 half comic was not drawn by J. Scott Campbell or Jim Lee. Instead, it was a guy named Ryan Benjamin, who I am not familiar with his work, just must have been one of the other young artists that they were bringing up there. So, as a result, the story feels kind of like a bootleg entry in the Gen 13 history. I mean, he's not part of the ongoing series, and yet here he is presenting really kind of the first look since that miniseries, but, you know, let's get into it here. We open on Caitlin, Roxy, Grunge, and Bobby driving through a town in Oregon, with Bobby antagonizing Fairchild about not knowing where she's going. Sarah Rainmaker is nowhere to be found, but more on that later. Eventually, the group decide to pull over and take a break from each other. Meanwhile, a female interdimensional time traveler shows up in purple armor, rambling about how she needs to stop some guy from destroying the time stream, and uh, starts attacking random citizens for not supplying her with his location. And after muttering to himself about how he should be the leader of the Gen 13 team, Bobby, aka Burnout, decides to flame on, <clears throat> excuse me, burn on, and subdue the menace. Now Fairchild gets wind of the skirmish and shows up to lend a hand, but gets energy blasted in a very sensitive area. Yeah, uh, this is an unfortunate panel layout where Fairchild is facing the reader head on with legs splayed out to either side as she's being hurled backwards by a giant energy ball placed squarely in her nether regions. It looks like she's giving birth to the Electro Gremlin from Gremlins 2. It's very disturbing. Uh, it should also be mentioned that Fairchild wisely decides to put on some Daisy Duke shorts of this issue so as to not look like a refugee from an aerobics studio while walking around in public. Anyway, so Roxy and Grunge show up with Grunge displaying an interesting side effect of his absorption powers when he touches a fire hydrant to gain a hard metal skin to enter the battle, the cap of the hydrant grows out of his shoulder. So it's as if he literally absorbed the entire item that he touched. Eventually, the villain gets knocked into a fuel gas truck that begins leaking, and Roxy has the coolest moment of the issue where her nasty smoking habit saves the day as she flicks a cigarette into the growing gasoline puddle and causes an explosion. This doesn't totally incapacitate their antagonist, so Fairchild rips out some wiring from her armor and then wraps a stop sign around the troublemaker. The group then takes off, remembering that they are fugitives on the run and shouldn't wait around for the cops. Now, one weird thing about this half issue is there is an editor's note indicating that you can find out more about the mission of the villain in Stormwatch number 9. 
fine. Well, I grabbed that issue from a quarter bin, and there is no mention of Gen 13 or this half issue or even the mysterious armored woman. So who was she? Well, luckily that is explained mm, somewhat in issue number zero. Now, here is what Wizard had to say about issue zero in their picks from the Wizard's Hat section. If you're looking for your typical grim and gritty image heroes, toting Terminator-style guns and working for some government agency, then keep on looking. You'll find none of that here. If, however, you want guys with big muscles and gals with big, <laughs> uh, hair? Clad in skid-tight, revealing spandex? Then stick around. Gen 13 is a book for you. According to creator Jim Lee, quote, The subject matter is atypical for an image comic. Gen 13, he says, is a throwback to an older style of comic. We've taken a more innocent type of hero and given them a very contemporary edge. Lee's motivation for this is, is surprising. Quote, I got real depressed when Daredevil and Batman changed their spandex costumes into armor. It looks like they've been imagized and I didn't like it. Hence, in an effort to counter a trend that he and his cohorts may very well have begun, Lee designed a set of more streamlined characters. Penciler and co-plotter J. Scott Campbell wants to, quote, create a book that I would be interested in reading. Campbell has been taking his time to develop the characters and situations rather than just throwing stuff pell-mell. Isn't that usually piecemeal? I don't know. At the reader. Quote, I think there's an improvement with each issue. I'm very proud of the work we've done. Check out Gen 13 number 0 and Another ish in one of Image's better titles. So yeah, Wizard at least believed that Jed 13 had some redeeming qualities. So what's interesting about this book actually is that it is divided into four different chapters and they're all by different creative teams. Now, this is all in an attempt to explain the whereabouts of the Gen 13 cast following the half issue and how they are all going to meet up to start their new life together. So in the first installment, which is actually penciled by Jim Lee, we open on Caitlin Fairchild at a train station waiting for her cousin while wearing a flowy sundress. And in the opening right next to her, we get a recap of the wizard half story, proving that it was in fact in continuity. It is there we learn the name of the villain they follow was Traveler, though that is never said out loud in the half story, so I'm not sure how Caitlin came up with that. When the cousin finally shows up, she and her abusive husband get into an argument where the jerk threatens to slap his wife, which Fairchild stops with her superior strength. Then we learn the guy ratted her out to some government men in black who chase Caitlin onto the tracks where she is hit by a train. But rather than run off to lick her wounds, Fairchild lifts the train up and throws it at her pursuers before jumping into a car with a random guy who says that John Lynch sent him. The men in black talk to each other as they drive away and talk about how they know the guy who's driving the car, complaining that he always gets the best assignments. So it seems like this massive property damage and public scene was all planned by John Lynch, which seems unwise if he was trying to stay underground and out of sight with these kids. But what do I know? The next chapter involves Bobby and Sarah at her home on the Apache Indian Reservation in Arizona. Now, as someone who has lived on and near the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, it's kind of cool to see that represented here, something I definitely did not understand when I was reading this as a middle schooler. Now, Bobby is the typical clueless, slightly bigoted white man trying to tell Sarah her business, but she patiently sets him straight on her native traditions, and after using their powers to go for a flying excursion around some scenic desert rock formations, 
Jones, they get to the heart of why Bobby's been such a jerk. Turns out he was adopted and bounced around to a lot of foster homes as a kid, so he's never felt accepted, playing the outsider with a chip on his shoulder. So Sarah offers some friendly comfort, and then they take off down the road to meet up with the rest of the crew. Now, I gotta say, this was a very nice story, since Bobby and Sarah as characters really just kind of appeared out of nowhere in the miniseries and didn't get much characterization. Plus, the art by Richard Johnson, I thought was really beautiful. So it was a pretty cool story here. Now, the third installment, though, was by far the most fun, which is understandable since it stars Freefall, aka Roxy, and Grunge, with art by regular artist J. Scott Campbell. Now, the pair are in Las Vegas trying to track down Roxy's mom, but end up using Freefall's gravity manipulation powers at the tables to earn a couple bucks. Grunge meets up with a Chinese gangster while gambling, who takes a liking to him, perhaps giving us an insight into where his name comes from. Grunge explains to the guy that he was born in China, but grew up in Seattle, which is really interesting, just to kind of get that breakdown there of Grunge's origins. But anyway, he is gifted a cool snakeskin jacket by the gangster, but then Roxy and Grudge are suddenly being pursued by another group of men in black, so they take off through the casino. And here we get even more interesting revelations about Grunge's powers, because first he gets shot in the chest, but he absorbs the bullets into his body, then spits them out. Next, to escape their pursuers, the funky fresh fugitives pose as statues. When Grunge touches a stone pillar, turning himself to stone, but by touching Roxy also, he is able to turn her into stone, so she has this appearance of marble. So I never knew that he could transfer his abilities that way. We'll see how that plays out in the ongoing series. Now, the fourth adventure finds John Lynch in full Mission Impossible mode, covertly infiltrating the IO headquarters in order to download and destroy the records on superpowered beings, or SPBs. He has an invisibility suit and sneaks in through a bathroom stall he had secretly created a false panel for when he was the head of the place. The art is by Travis Cherist and is nice, but Lynch isn't really the most vivacious character, so it wasn't like a super engaging story, but it's interesting at the end when he gets caught by the two new top dogs who used to work under him, but they decide to let him go because they owe him, but they let him know this is the last time. Now, the final page by J. Scott Campbell shows the group all arriving to meet at their new base of operations in La Jolla, California. For those of you who don't know Southern California geography, that is near San Diego, and also where the homage Wildstorm Studios were located at this time. So, uh, we meet Anna, their housekeeper, who has some secrets of her own to reveal in the ongoing series to come, and that is that. So, Issue Zero does have a lot to offer in terms of giving readers a few more details about the characters before their new adventures begin, and really, the cover is just classic. If you think about it, it's like the Breakfast Club poster, if all the characters had just tripped over each other that they took the shot. And the way Campbell has them interacting with the logo, as if it's like a three-dimensional sign that the team is using to steady themselves, is pretty hilarious. Speaking of the cover, there was also a special edition Chromium cover with some iconic art by Jim Lee that I had as a kid. I'm gonna take a break from covering Gen 13 until the ongoing series actually shows up in the Wizard Publishing timeline on the main show. So next time around, I'm gonna get back to the world of 2099 with Ghost Rider. 2099. But last time on the Gen 13 line, I promised a special treat, and here it is. I am currently working on a musical project, bringing some songs to life that I've wanted to do for a long time. Helping me with that is friend
friend of the show, Nerd Jam, and I am creating original rock songs based on comic book characters. It's shaping up to be really cool, and one of our songs is a tribute to Fairchild from Gen 13. So, here is the demo for the song, Caitlin. Hope you dig it. Getting more complicated Girl, all you love to hate it Your sheriff changed since the last semester You're a sexy suspect that I can't sequester Looks like you're on the run and gonna make us see Yeah Where they push you with your plate or up My pulse is pounding and I start to scream You got me singing Caitlyn the truth is that you've already won Caitlin, Caitlin The brains and beauty of your generation Caitlin The total package and you're driving me wild Caitlin, Caitlin You ain't a bad girl though, you're just a fair child Gotta live in the moment You got the power so own it One in a million if you know what I mean You're gonna lead the revolution of this jam team Your back's against the wall and things are getting hot Yeah, it's not one ever in this water be free The world is waiting, are you ready or not? You know I'm singing Caitlyn the truth is that you've already won, yeah. Caitlin, Caitlin, the brains and beauty of your generation. Caitlin, the total package and you're driving me wild. Caitlin, Caitlin, you ain't a bad girl, no, you're just a fit child, oh yeah. For a free fall, but I ain't no burnout. I just like that grunge. Go! So now I wanted to tell you a little bit about what I'm reading.
And so recently I started going through the new DC Infinite Frontier or Future State or whatever they're calling it, their new reboot of the universe, right? I'm like, I'm tired of all these reboots and they're just exhausting and you just can't sink your teeth into anything too long because it's just a little frustrating. But I decided to pick up Immortal Wonder Woman. It's a two-issue story and it was really, really good. It takes place far, far into the future, and she is the last living being in the multiverse. And it's a really powerful story. It's very interesting to hear her perspective and this warrior goddess character who just becomes this omniscient being. And it's really, it was a well worth read. I highly recommend it. It's a fun spiritual read, if you will. It kind of takes you to an interesting place, and I would have loved to have read more, but they end the story in such a nice way that it doesn't need anything more than this two-issue arc. I highly recommend it. If you can find it, buy it digitally, buy it at the comic shop, check out Immortal Wonder Woman 1 and 2. Definitely a great read. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to follow us on our social media, at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at wizards underscore comics on instagram follow us on our patreon or sign up at patreon.com slash wizards comics check us out on our t public store or subscribe to our youtube channel and see a lot of fun videos we have coming up but until next time don't forget to keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.